Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Lynn Alden, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on. Uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive, as a lot of my audience is probably accustomed to, but I think this one's going to have a slightly different flavor. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you because you such a brilliant thinker on these topics that are very abstract often kind of masked in a lot of jargon and strange language that's inaccessible to broad audiences so I'm, i hope that you know you and i talking together can can unravel some of this and you probably don't need an introduction but for my audience you are the founder of lynn alden investment strategy um, and a well-known macroeconomic thinker, both inside and outside the Bitcoin universe. And when we got to talking about this originally, we were deciding on what we should talk about. I think we've, we've narrowed down a few different texts we wanted to focus on. But the first one we we're going to start with was this, this is your recommendation, actually, this IMF working paper on the liquidation of government debt. And this is written by Carmen Reinhardt and Belen Shabranchia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I think Reinhardt's the author of This Time is Different, right? Uh, she's done a number of works. Yeah. Uh, I forget all the titles, but yeah, she's, she's a well-known um, uh, publisher of these types of papers. Yeah, I know I recognize her name. I think I've read, read that book of hers that she at least co-authored. Um, so again, really great, grateful to have you on. I, what I, I guess what we could start with, I'll just read the abstract to this paper and then we'll start working our way through it sequentially. Um, the abstract reads that high public debt often produces the drama of default and restructuring, but debt is also reduced through financial repression. That's a key term in this paper which is a tax on bondholders and savers via negative or below market real interest rates. After World War II, capital controls and regulatory restrictions created a captive audience for government debt, 
limiting tax base erosion. Financial repression is most successful in liquidating debt when accompanied by inflation. For the advanced economies, real interest rates were negative for half the time during 1945 to 1980. Average annual interest expense savings for a 12 country sample range from about one to 5% of GDP for the full 1945 to 1980 period. We suggest that once again, financial repression may be part of the toolkit deployed to cope with the most recent surge in public debt in advanced economies. Um, yeah, so we're gonna pick a lot of that apart. There's a lot of terms in there and the authors do a great job of unpacking it, but I'd love to first just hear your general thoughts on kind of the abstract and where, you know, again, this paper was a recommendation by you. So maybe the impact that this, this paper had on your thinking in particular. Yeah, this is, it's, it's funny because they actually lay the outline out pretty clearly. And this, this was published in major, uh, you know, major organizations, right? So she actually, they published a, an earlier version of this paper in 2011 Hmm. Uh, with the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the the organization that officially call uh, calls recessions in the hmm. U.S., they're the ones that basically you know define a recession. Hmm. Uh, and then they also you know republished an updated version of the paper here at the IMF. Um, and so these are you know obviously rather you know large official bodies, hmm. um, and they're basically just coming out and rather bluntly outlining what happened historically and what is likely to happen in the future regarding the real returns. Um, of of cash and government debt uh, in an era of high debt, you know, relative to economic activity, mm. and some of the unsavory means that are employed in mm. order to make that possible. Um, and so it's actually, you know, they use a lot of jargon, but they're also actually surprisingly direct, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with with the descriptions of what happens. And they're, you know, my initial approach into understanding how debt cycles end uh, was through Ray Dalio. Uh, his mm -hmm. concept of the long-term debt cycle. He's been talking about that for something like a decade now. Uh, and that's the idea that, you know, you have these normal business cycles, you know, you have credit expansions, credit, you know, contractions, uh, but that, you know, in this modern financial system, uh, they basically, you know, because you have central banks and you have fiscal policymakers, uh, when you start to get a deleveraging event, uh, they come in, they cut interest rates, they do fiscal stimulus, they try to short circuit that at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they start rebuilding debt from there. And so as a result, you get higher and higher debt over time, like higher highs and higher lows, and you get lower highs and lower lows in terms of interest rates. And that works until you hit, you know, basically you can get higher debt, but then the the interest expense on that debt is offset by lower interest rates. And so interest, you know, interest to maintain that debt is not really going up, even though debt is going up relative to incomes, relative to economic activity. Uh, but that stops working once you get around the zero bound or even slightly negative in some cases. It's, it's much harder to go to deeply negative interest rates. Right. Um, and so at that point, higher debt would result in higher interest payments on that debt relative to the size of the economy. Uh, and so that's when you encounter what Dalio would refer to as a long-term debt cycle unfolding, which is where you get a different type of economic environment. And that's one of higher inflation, negative real interest rates, and what this paper would call financial oppression, basically inflating mm. some chunk of that debt away. And mm. it could be could be a spectacular hyperinflation in some cases, or it could be these these more you know, subdued, longer grinds where you're just getting inflated by several percentage points a year over the course of, of years or decades. 
Uh, and so I think that's the that's the this is an environment where being familiar with history is very helpful because the last time we encountered public debt to GDP levels as high as they are now was back in this you know 1940s war era, mm-hmm. uh, which is the last you know time that did you know in Dalio's terminology would be a long term debt cycle, and it would be the the last time. Uh, you know that there was a fourth turning. That's kind of the the mm. qualitative social aspect of what was happening at the time, and so I think this is really instructive. And I think one more point I'd bring up is that there was a study by Hirschman Capital a couple years ago, I believe, and they analyzed uh, public debt in in you know dozens of countries around the world going back about 200 years, uh, and they found that 98% of the time, if you got to about 130% debt to GDP. Uh, you'd have a default of some sort within mm. the next 10 to 15 years or so. And that default could take a number of forms. If it's an emerging market that has debt that's not denominated in their own currency, or it's not denominated in something hard like gold, mm. uh, they're more likely to restructure and outright default in various ways, basically say that we, we just don't have the capability to pay this back. Whereas, of course, if you have the liability denominated in a adjustable currency that you can print, uh, the the quote unquote default takes place in real terms where you get paid back every unit you're owed, but yeah. those units are, you know, devaluated in, in a rather uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm. And so they they were kind of highlighting that in the current environment we're likely to experience that type of thing over the next ten to fifteen years. And I would say in the in the couple of years since that paper came out, we're kind of well in our way uh, to to having that play out. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting um, how. Pervasive and large, this this debt structure has become, and you know, I think the Austrians were right when they rooted this in the basement of the money. You know, a lot of the Austrian business cycle theory, the increased booms and busts you're talking about. Uh, you know, Mises talked about this back in 1949. He said that's basically the the inevitable outcome. Once you start debasing the currency, you have to get back to economic reality either through deflationary shocks or further debasement. And if we let's we'll try to keep, I'll try to keep bringing us back to simplicity here because I know it's very easy to get carried away in a lot of this terminology. So if we just consider, and please correct me anywhere I'm wrong on any of this, debt as just simply a promise to money in the future, or a promise to some payment of goods or services in the future. Yeah, and exactly. This, and, the, and of course, there's different forms. There's there's securities that it's packaged versions, and there's mm-hmm. there's loans, and there's ones that are you know, issued by private entities, and there's ones issued by official public entities. Yes. And in general, this paper is detailing how governments have both accumulated and then subsequently discharged their debts across history, both advanced and emerging economies, and all the different machinations they've used to, uh, I guess, a number of things to freeze, to get captive audiences, as they say, to freeze capital in a certain location so they can tax it or, or debase a currency. Um, and what what's further interesting about this paper, I, get, I think it's IMF sponsored or IMF is at least at the top of this paper. I don't know what their role is. They published it, but they don't. You know, they 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 go on to claim that the the authors' views are their own. Uh, that, you know, not not every statement in the paper is ne- necessarily endorsed by the IMF. Right, which that's what makes this interesting is that the authors are not mincing words, using terms like financial repression as a means by governments to discharge these debts. Um, and so getting into the paper a 
bit. I will read one more excerpt here that just sort of lays out in general uh, the framework for the paper and then what this is going to be in regard to when debt to GDP hits certain levels, there's only a select number of ways out of it. That's basically what this excerpt lays out. It says, throughout history, debt to GDP ratios have been reduced by one of the following, basically, economic growth or substantive fiscal adjustment slash austerity plans or explicit default or restructuring of private and or public debt or a surprise burst of inflation or a steady dosage of financial repression accompanied by an equally steady dosage of inflation. Um, th those are not, I said, or between them, but I guess they're and, or, you know, you can use any combination of them. And then the authors go on to say options four and five, which are the surprise burst of inflation or the steady dosage, dosage of financial repression accompanied by a steady dosage of inflation are viable only for domestic currency debts, which I think is the point you made. If the debt's denominated in your own currency, you can just print more of the currency to pay it. So you're not technically defaulting, but you're sort of implicitly defaulting and that you're paying back devalued currency. Since these debt reduction channels are not mutually exclusive, historical episodes of debt, I'm sorry, historical episodes of debt reduction have owed to a combination of more than one of these channels. And the, the last thing, and this, this is a sentence mentioned in the paragraph, paragraph after, it says, as high levels of public debt appear, or it says, the evidence at any rate is not particularly encouraging as high levels of public debt appear to be associated with lower growth. So there's a bit of a pernicious thing here where you need economic growth to get you out of this debt to GDP um, excess in an honest way, but high debt to GDP actually inhibits growth. So it's kind of a rock and a hard place situation, which then leads to all these alternative channels of debt discharge. Yeah. And then a challenging thing is that, so austerity works under normal environments where you, you run a relatively balanced situation, you have, you know, well-functioning markets. The problem is if you have decades and decades of not practicing austerity, you get to these super high debt levels that are you know, only able to get there due to this kind of manipulation of, of getting things that high. Picking the if can down the road kind of mentality. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you then try to practice austerity, you're like, okay, we've gone too far. Let's start practicing it. The problem is then you get stagnating GDP because you know you're so reliant on all those things in the first place all that fiscal stimulus uh and you start you start trying to practice it and then you get basically stagnant gdp so you're actually your g your debt to gdp is not even going down mm. you're, you're kind of just eating eating you know your your kind of seed corn mm. and we, we've seen that these these periods of time where they try that like so for example europe actually tried it uh you know after the european sovereign debt crisis they're trying to do these you know get their deficits as tight as possible uh and you just see no growth and you see debt to GDP just go sideways, and that you know worked for a few years until they encounter some sort of external shock, and then it's mm. all games are off, and they 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 end up having another spike in debt. Mm. Um, and so that's why, for example, that Hirschman Capital report showed that once you get to like say 130 percent, and there's you know there's wiggle room around the exact number, there's no mm. magical threshold, but once you get super high, it, you're kind of past the event horizon of recoverability, yeah. where where there's almost no way to grow your way out of it. 
or austerity your way out of it mm. and that you're you're going to default in one way or another mm. before you can eventually stabilize and get back to a period of more honest growth right you you you're already so malinvested that you're you know you're you're in that kind of tailspin that's that's really hard to recover from right and so the the kind of the reference to the paper and you know from what i see just looking around the world today is that we are in that kind of past event horizon stage for a lot especially developed countries where you know they 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 can try austerity they can try you know growth things but basically one way or another we're going to see defaults and of course yeah. among developed countries that control their own currencies we're very likely to see that in the form of real defaults where yeah. just like today i mean official inflation's you know 8.5% uh meat and poultry inflation something like 14% year over mm. year gasoline prices are up you know, 50 to 60% year over year. Mm -hmm. uh, and interest rates are, you know, what is it like uh, 0.75% and going up by 50 mm -hmm. basis points or so every six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, we actually have the biggest gap you've ever had between policy rates mm -hmm. and inflation rates uh, since the 1940s uh, in wow. the US and, and most other countries. So basically, we're the last time we did financial oppression, we had a gap this wide and we're kind of back in this financial repression, but they're, you know, most policymakers are not at the stage where they're officially doing it. They're they're right. saying, okay, we're going to get inflation under control. We're going to hike rates. That's still what the Fed's going on. European Union's a little bit more down the road of saying, you know, we don't, we, you know, we're kind of, we're going to be slower at doing that. And then you actually have Japan who's doing outright yield curve control. So they're actually doing more explicit financial repression where they're saying our inflation targets 2%, uh, but we're going to hold long duration bonds at 0.25% or less by printing as many yen as needed to buy bonds at that peg. Wow. Um, and so we have more explicit financial oppression out of Japan, although they haven't done, they haven't turned to the full range of things yet. They haven't done these, you know, draconian capital controls and they mm -hmm. haven't, you know, but they are doing that, that, you know, explicit yield curve management. Yeah, this a couple things here. One, I mean, I would just like to point to the nature of addiction in a way. It's like governments really do get addicted to this free lunch of debt early on. And then um, as we'll get into the paper, I think they use a lot of coercive means to discharge that the consequences of that debt onto others. Um, and what you said here too about the inflation, official inflation rate being whatever it is, 8%, you know, the actual price inflation impacting people's lives is, seems to be much higher than that, as you said, with meat and poultry and gas, things that people actually buy. When you net, you take that inflation rate net of the interest rate, that's the negative real yield, right? This is the actual metric of financial repression, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the same thing you described Japan is doing, right? They're saying, we're just going to keep Printing as many yen as necessary to buy this long-term bond, keeping it pegged at, I think you said, 25 basis points yield. Um, so basically saying they're going to keep doing, they're going to keep discharging that debt through that mechanism, uh, you know, until they say otherwise, basically. So all of this, it's almost like the decisions to accumulate the debt are made by a few, and then they start to get discharged on everyone else over time through all these different channels. Um, and so there's, there's governments getting addicted to debt, but then there's these sort of ob 
obfuscating discharge mechanisms slash coercive discharge mechanisms that appear to give them plausible deniability after the fact. And we see that the rhetoric coming out of the White House today is pretty uh, is a testament to that, where inflation has nothing to do with monetary policy. It has to do with the war in Ukraine or COVID or anything other than a central bank. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear just your commentary on, on some of that. Sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, generally you see these ramp up, these these financial oppressions ramp up during eras of wartime finance, right? So it could be an actual war, like world, you know, World War II or what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, or it could be, you know, before we had this recent war, I was describing the pandemic response as, you know, if people ask me looking at the charts, if you didn't know anything about a pandemic or lockdowns, what would you what would you think is happening? And I would say it looks like wartime finance. It looks like yeah. some sort of war is happening, and there's these large fiscal responses to deal with it. Mm. Um, and so we, you know, during the 2020 so far, we've essentially been in a wartime finance type of environment. Um, and during during those types of periods, politicians do have more cover to do those types of policies. They can link those policies to patriotism. Uh, they they have more uh, release valves for saying mm. where that came from. Um, and and this, you know, the politicians in multiple countries from multiple political parties turn to this sort of, you know, blame the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, it, there's it, things like that work because there's always a grain of truth to it, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it, does Russia's impact Im- impact oil prices? Almost certainly. Yeah. Um, but it's an overlay on top of something that was building for quite a while. I right. mean, for example, if you look at European natural gas prices, they blew out at the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. You know, they started looking like this Weimar chart because you had, you know, you had real supply and demand problems um, and they had, you know, some, some currency problems and things like that. They were blowing out well before the war. Um, and of course, the war contributes to that because now mm-hmm. the whole supply is in question. Um, but the actual, you know, people forget the, the order of events of how these things unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when narratives, you know, normal narratives break down, when they have these types of cover, they can turn to sort of things like that. And so, for example, during the 1940s, the United States did something very similar to what Japan's doing today. Uh, and, and of course, the paper covers this period of financial oppression, the IMF paper. And basically, what we did was, you know, we're, we're fighting World War II. Uh, inflation's obviously running quite hot because we're, you know, we're expanding money supply by 20, 30 percent a year. Um, commodity prices are soaring um, because every country needs every commodity they can get uh, in order to wage total war. Um, and you know, you you basically they they the central bank said, okay, well, you know, federal debt's 100% of GDP. What are we going to do? Uh, and so the Treasury basically captured the Fed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you had this almost merger between the two. And they said, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to hold interest rates low and help us finance the war to win. Hmm. Uh, and so the Federal Reserve held short-term interest rates at near zero. I think it was three-eighths of a percent. Um, and they they capped long-duration treasuries at 2.5%. Um, and so they, and they, of course, they they did that with a, a peg. So they, they had, you know, they were willing to print dollars to buy treasuries in order to maintain that peg as needed until the market realized that they're serious about it. So the market kind of does that for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then they do other things like capital controls or bank requirements saying, okay, banks, you have to hold treasuries as this much percentage of your assets, for example. 
um, to help the you know have the banking system help finance that to limit how much the Fed has to finance it. And so you had inflation run an average of about six percent for a decade from the early 40s to the early 50s, um, while interest rates were zero to 2.5 percent, depending on what part of the you know duration curve you're on. And at one point, inflation officially hit 19 percent year over year during that period, and they they're still holding rates near zero because they're in that period of financial oppression. Mm. And the reason the governments turn to that is because at that point, the alternative, if they ever default on their nominal government bonds, is that you would get a cascading default throughout the entire banking mm. system. Right. So because we, we we collateralize liabilities by other liabilities, it's, it's turtles mm. all the way down. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if you look at a commercial bank, you know their their risk free capital is uh, bank reserves they hold at the Fed right. uh, and treasuries, right? right. And the Fed. Uh, you know, they all of their liabilities are currency in circulation and those bank reserves that commercial banks are. So those are liabilities of the Fed, and their primary assets are treasuries. Right. Um, and so if you ever have a default of treasuries, the Fed would be technically insolvent. Commercial banks would technically be insolvent. And so everything blows up. And so, of course, right. rather than everything blowing up, they're saying, okay, everybody has to take a haircut in real right. terms, and this is how we're going to do it. The alternative is if you... You know, if you if you don't control the liabilities, like we saw this, for example, in in some uh, southern European countries during the European sovereign debt crisis, instead of having that type of financial oppression, they had bank bailouts. So they mm. said, okay, you know, this bank's going to be insolvent, but you know, we don't control control the euro. We can't just unilaterally print the euro as one of the countries in the eurozone, and say, okay, we're going to do bank bail-ins where depositors are all going to get a haircut. Mm. Um, and you're going to be issued some bank equity, you know, in in exchange for that haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that bank equity is now worth a lot less. Right. Um, and so you you get these kind of devaluations that way. So there's multiple ways to do a devaluation or a default, um, depending on the details. And that's the type of environment we're in today. Yeah, it's really really ugly. Um, so this is almost like chronicling the band-aids and duct tape that get applied to debt structures over time and really as you said turtles all the way down in terms of debt all the way down but at the bottom of that is really gold right whoever has the gold kind of makes the rules so to speak that's what Bretton Wood was and, and all of these things so um it's interesting to me that this connection between indebtedness you know I'm, I'm often reminded of that old quote that there's two ways to enslave a country one is by sword one is by debt that this ends up all this indebtedness ends up entangling uh, a lot of interest in a way that becomes really hard to it becomes too big to fail right so you have to put more band-aids more duct tape you get into this real vicious cycle and before you know it you've just completely divorced um our socioeconomic system from market realities, right? It just becomes this almost a, a realm of pure policy um, changes. So, and now this gets us into this term, which again, this is one of the reasons I really like the paper is they just call it financial repression. Like that's what they're doing is they accumulate too much debt. So what do they do? They engage in financial repression on productive market actors to relieve themselves of that debt. So I'll read one little excerpt here. It says, 
Apparently, it has been collectively forgotten that the widespread system of financial repression that prevailed worldwide from 1945 to the early 1980s played an instrumental role in reducing or liquidating the massive stocks of debt accumulated during World War II in many of the advanced countries, including the United States. Is this financial repression... Is this a difference only in degree, but not kind of outright physical oppression? Because they're, I mean, what we're saying here is you're basically coercing and stealing from people to pay for you, your debts, right? When I say your, the, the policymakers are coercing and stealing from citizens to pay for debts they have accumulated in wartime, largely. Is that accurate? I think it becomes coercion once they hit a point where they they make you own that debt or make entities Mm. own that debt, despite the fact that it's getting devalued. So if they're not making entities own it, but they're devaluing it, then you could kind of describe that as a form of trickery. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're somehow encouraging people to, or entities, we should say financial entities, of owning this thing that is not doing very well in terms of purchasing power. Mm. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if they, if they run this system and you have the ability to opt out of the system, but for whatever reason you're choosing to participate in the system, you're making, you're, you're getting duped into basically sticking with it. Um, mm. Now, if that doesn't work, sometimes they do start crossing the line into outright coercion where um, they, you know, for example, in the United States, there's 40 year period, roughly four decades or so, where it was illegal for Americans to own gold, mm-hmm. punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Um, and so I would, I would describe that, of course, as a form of coercion that you're, mm-hmm. you're they're trying to block the exits yes. before burning down the theater. And the uh, bail in too was coercive, right? Or they're just taking depositor money and giving them diluted bank equity in return. Yes. But you can describe that as trickery or coercion, depending on if you had to have deposits there. So, for example, as we as we talk, we you know there are some crypto banks that are blowing up. Mm-hmm. Of course, people didn't have to have deposits there. They're these small fries compared to what's happening at the global scale. Right. Um, and so, whether if there's financial oppression at a traditional bank, you know, or bail in at a traditional bank, the question is, did they have to have deposits there? Was some sort of mandate that they had to have deposits there, or were they kind of mm. You know, encouraged to have deposits there. Um, so again, you can call that trickery, or you can call that coercion, depending on the specifics. But once you get into outright forcing people to own this asset that's being devalued, then yes, I would describe that as a form of of coercion. That that's force. Uh, if if someone wants to own gold and you're willing to put them in prison for owning gold, that would be a type of coercion. Uh, yeah. Most people describe it as a very reasonable, unreasonable type of coercion. I mean, if someone wants to own nukes and you come to the door and say, no, you can't own nukes, most people would find, okay, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. But if you're trying to own literally a benign yellow metal yeah. and they're saying, no, we're going to put you in jail for 10 years because you, you chose to do that, uh, that is, you know, most people today would consider that very uh, crazy. You know, <laughs> un- 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 yeah, crazy. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is in history, they, there's very few in the United States, very few prosecutions over that is one of those like you know giant threat rarely enforced mm, because it's, it's, right. it's very hard to enforce it and actually right. that's kind of the history of financial oppressions where most of the coercion in practice happens at the institutional level because mm. that's far easier to enforce you know yep. if there's a few thousand banks right it's easier for them to say you have to have say 30 percent of your 
assets and treasuries. Less threats uh, it, to choke. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and you know they can't get up and move anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to make money, so they want to be in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to, it takes a lot less force and a lot more. Just you know, you sign a couple laws and then it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas of course, when you have a, a further breakdown and you're actually going out to the to the public level. Now the the number of enforcement points are in the millions, mm. and you're you're more likely to get pushback. And right. you know, in, today in emerging markets, we see signs where you know, like Turkey said, okay, you can't use crypto for a medium of exchange. You mm. know, they're not outright banning ownership of it, but they're saying you can't use a medium of exchange. Basically, there's different levels that countries will resort to uh, to coerce people to to mm-hmm. use the national currency. They they could they could say, look, you know, like and Turkey's done this. Well, they'll say. Uh, you know, it's patriotic to not own gold and not own dollars and not own Bitcoin, but to own lira. Um, and <laughs> right. if that doesn't work, they say, okay, now it's either illegal to own these things or there's limitations on these other things. We make it, we add frictions yeah. in order to own these other things. Up to the most extreme is that you literally go to jail if you mm. own these other things or some subset of these other things. Mm. Um, and the, you know, one of the mildest forms is taxing every other asset so that. Uh, you know, the, the people right. have, at least have to keep going back to the currency. They can own right. other things, but at the end of the day, they have to go back to the currency to pay their taxes. Um, but then, of course, it, you know, each society kind of has these lines in the sand where they start to say that, well, that's unreasonable. I mean, saying that it's punishable by 10 years to own gold would would cross that threshold for most people today, whereas most people are accepting of other, you know, somewhere else on the spectrum. And so yeah. it's, it's just, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really... Okay, this gets into this idea that you know there are there are cost benefit considerations being made by government and how they're going to impose these um, channels of financial repression, for lack of a better term. And in the authors do go into this later, but like I guess the easiest one would be kind of the moral suasion, like you described with Turkey, saying, "Oh, it's your patriotic duty to hold lira, not these other currencies." Um, and we've seen that historically too, right? There's always in in like Soviet Russia, there used to be this appeal to just nationalistic faith and devotion. It's like you don't need we don't need price signals and all of this. You just do it for the love of Mother Russia, and that was going to be the fix to the economy. This is kind of a, a similar theme, but just applied to the financial arena. It says it seems instead of the the larger economic arena. Um, so by way of, and this is sort of deviating off the paper, but, um, just as a specific example that comes to mind, the Cyprus bail-in, I think that was 2015 time range. You were describing that it wouldn't necessarily be coercive if depositors were not required or mandated to have deposits at that bank. And I don't know the specifics of the situation, so please correct me or fill me in anywhere I'm off here. But as I understood it, there were depositors in Cyprus banks just voluntarily, as in you or I go open a bank account today, but then we wake up one day and it's everything over, every deposit balance over 100,000, whatever it was, was taxed at you know some huge percent, 70, 80, 90%, something like that. Um, isn't that, is that coercive if there, even though there were not, we were not required to have deposits at that bank, but we had deposits at that bank based on a certain contract relationship that then that contract relationship is basically violated overnight via this bail-in mechanism. 
Would you classify that as coercive? I would describe that as broken contracts. You could Mm. describe it as fraudulent. Uh, Mm. uh, You could describe it as a default of contract. Yeah. Um, And again, it it, kind of depends on scale, right? So if there's some small bank that, you know, say crypto bank today, given the Mm. context and that lures depositors in, they default on them. Um, You know, was that coercive or was that, you know, consumer kind of malpractice? Was that, you know, false right. marketing was it but well, w- once you get to a bigger and bigger scale i mean if you're like the largest bank in a country and you know you're you're kind of the default choice it, it's closer to coercion because you're because you have you're less choices yeah there's fewer choices people yeah. have to do more frictions not to have deposits at that bank right. um you know i i'd still be somewhat cautious with word choice around that there's still a spectrum there right yeah. so, so if they were not actually forced if there were some some alternatives that people could have taken, but at the bare minimum, it was obviously a, a breach of contract. It was a default yes. of contract. It was, uh, you know, you didn't have you didn't have the choice not to get bailed in once you already had your funds there. Right. Um, and so yeah, it was a default in various ways. So that's a great point. There's a spectrum here, right? I guess with moral suasion at one end, that's a it's not coercive. It's just kind of a guilt trip, I guess. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there is um, Executive Order 6102, right? And governments are engaging in this whole spectrum of financial repression. I guess these would all be under financial repression. Maybe, maybe not. Um, But as things get more desperate, clearly they err towards the end of the spectrum, um, like Executive Order 6102, confiscating gold and things like that. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Um, yeah, okay. Just trying to set the stage here that this is we're not talking about bright and happy topics here this is kind of a kind of serious um so there's another term here they use 
liquidation effect. And as I understand this, this is effectively when a negative real rate is used to liquidate government debt onto market actors. But to have a liquidation effect, you need these captive audiences of capital, right? You need a, a tax base to tax. Um, you need capital to tax and satisfy the debt itself. Um, so, and the, I guess to have the key point here is that you need, so like capital controls, all these ways to keep capital legible and accessible by tax authorities is key to this whole process. Because obviously if people can escape this, right, they can send their capital to another country or, you know, put it onto a USB drive, which obviously didn't exist back then they would probably take these options, these exit options. And um, as you said, governments kind of actively block the exits to the theater while they burn it down. Um, so what, what, how is this, and they go on to call this too, the, the financial repression tax. What is the liquidation effect versus the financial repression tax versus negative real yields? Are these things all... Uh, they're all, they're all different. The yeah, they're all okay. they're all different ways of describing the same thing. I would say okay. that liquidation of government debt is a result of financial oppression, where financial mm. oppression is is you know holding entities in these assets that are being devalued in real terms, and then the result of that is that you know if the government's successful in that, they can reduce their debt relative to GDP, mm. uh, and that would be a effective liquidation of some of their government debt, mm. and depending on the details of that country, the different methods would, would come into play. And so if, if you're one of the more desirable countries to be in, let's say the United States in the 1940s, mm. you know, where, you know, out of all the world, which countries do you want to be in? Right. Um, you can generally use some of the more mild ones. Um, and if you're in some of the worse areas, you generally turn to the, the harsher ones, right? So the United States, was less concerned about money fleeing out of the country and yeah. more concerned about say money fleeing into gold. So they, mm. you know, they you generally block the thing that's better than you. Right. So the United right. States okay. says, okay, we don't want we don't want it going from dollars to gold. Whereas if you're if you're if you're Soviet Union, you want to block it from leaving the country because yeah. you know, given the choice, you know, many entities would rather have money in a in a uh, you know more rule of law type jurisdiction. Yeah. And so generally when you get to smaller countries, authoritarian countries, emerging market, you basically the, the further you are away from the, the most desirable places to be, they're more likely to have a, more draconian capital controls and more types of capital controls because they're further away from the center of where that capital wants to be. And so uh, that that's kind of the, the, again, it goes back to the spectrum where generally they, they find themselves mostly just having to prevent capital flows from what is better than than they offer right yeah so the the inhibition of freedom is essential to this the duct tape and band-aids on these debt structures right so they kind of go hand in hand that this the buildup of this debt is creating more oppression repression and therefore divisiveness conflict all of these things and, and I love the way you said that blocking the thing that's better than you, because in the US, we just needed to block gold, but abroad, they needed to block capital going into the US. 
And so is this, um, I'm reminded here of, I think it's called Exeter's Pyramid, the thing that's inverted with, you know, gold's the most liquid and trustless asset at the bottom and something like derivatives um, are at the top with a lot of counterparty risk built into them. You're basically trying to prevent people from escaping down that pyramid into gold, ultimately. Yes, yes. And you even see it today within, you know, during the European sovereign debt crisis, even though you have multiple countries sharing the same currency, the euro, you would see these regional differences. Um, because if you're holding a euro in an Italian bank, that is, you know, arguably riskier than holding a euro in a German bank, right? for example. Yeah. And so you, th there's all these, whenever there's inequality between either regions and, and just literally that just specific inequality in that sense, referring to the specific unit, what would you mm -hmm. rather have given the choice a German Euro or an Italian Euro in the, in the tail risk event that the Eurozone breaks up and that a Euro is no longer a Euro and it's a, you know, it's a different type of unit mm -hmm. uh, and it gets devalued or, or, you know, maybe, maybe revalued, uh, you know, based on that, um, you know, there's, there's different rules in place for how that capital flows. Right. Um, and of course, you know, on the, on the f far end of the extreme, you'd have something like North Korea. Um, so even, right. you know, the United States executive order on gold wouldn't even be the most extreme. I mean, that was still is obviously it, it's extreme in a silly sense. Um, yeah. But, you know, obviously North Korea or something like that would be the, the true end of, of how far it can go um, in, in history and, and present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, well, it's interesting, too, that so. I mean, just to insert the value prop of Bitcoin to some extent here, it's, and I often argue, you know, you need to understand the importance of gold before you can really understand the importance of Bitcoin. And so you get in this attempt to hold these debt structures together, we're creating more conflict, divisiveness, repression. People are trying, you're creating this pressure where people are trying to escape into the quote unquote neutral territory of gold, right? Something that's universally accepted and, you know, relatively securable. Um, and so it, um, you know, had, I just, I also often try to replay these situations in my mind of had Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin existed at that time, how would the game dynamics have played out differently? Um, and it just seems like it's much harder to put much harder to ring fence these tax bases or, or certain, forms of capital to tax in a world where uh, liquid wealth moves much with much lower friction. Yeah, technology definitely impacts the tools that people have that that authorities have to restrict the flow of capital. Mm -hmm. And that's one way, you know, when I looked at Bitcoin, I when I describe Bitcoin to people, I say that it, you know, it's 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 so far the most you know efficient, credible and, and decentralized way to transfer value peer to peer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, before, if you wanted, you know, before Bitcoin, if you wanted to uh, restrict global flows of capital, right? If I want to send money to Japan, how do I do it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, if I, I could, I could stuff cash in an envelope and send it, but that's obviously limited. Mm -hmm. I could bring physically on some sort of transport, but of course, that's subject to all sorts of customs and physical checks. Um, so realistically, I would have to have my bank send their bank money. And mm -hmm. so if the, if the governments want to restrict that in some way or put rules on it or surveil it, they don't have to enforce it at the personal level. They just have to right. enforce it on the bank level. And right. that's easy to do. 
Um, and so what Bitcoin does is it gives, you know, everyone with an internet connection uh, in the world and an ability to send peer to peer. Um, and so the enforcement point for preventing that mm -hmm. is on the individual level, right. which is orders of magnitude more, more points to enforce yeah. and more likely to stir up, you know, backlash if right. you if you if they if they overstep their ability to enforce something and then they get pushback from that um that's it's a, it's a much riskier proposition to enforce and so i yeah I, the, certainly technology plays a role in the tools of financial repression that are that are you know likely or unlikely to work and you basically need higher levels of authoritarianism to mm. overcome higher levels of technology and when it comes to moving money around so for example right. You know, maybe if you're North Korea or China, you could still restrict it uh, or restrict a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have some semblance of rule of law and freedom of speech and relative freedom of transaction, uh, it's much harder to to restrict things mm -hmm. as, as technology enables more capital flows. Yeah. So again, we're back to that. Um, the number of enforcement points, right? That's effectively the cost of enforcement or it's it's yes. commensurate to the cost of enforcement for government. And that impacts their ability, right? Um, that impacts their profitability as a taxing authority, effectively. It's like there's a greater cost now to um, imposing this tax. This just makes me think, like, how much, <laughs> this is a big question, probably, how much of what you think we're seeing in the world today is a result of these technological changes that governments, I guess, are waking up to these new technological realities and the explosion of enforcement points um is that related to this seeming uh clamping down governments seem to be trying to re-centralize power maybe in the face of decentralizing technologies something like that I, I think to some degree i mean i think this is the direction we're heading in i mean speaking of imf papers they've had papers along with the ecb on on things like central bank digital currencies and how those would increase their ability to automatically do enforcement points. Basically, mm -hmm. if you know, if, let's say you ban cash, right? So, and again, you can mostly do it at the banking level and the and the merchant level. You can say, okay, we're not going to go and get every piece of cash out there, but we're going to mm -hmm. say, you know, cash is not legal tender. Uh, banks, if they get cash, they you know they either reject it or it's just one way. They never send out cash. They'll take cash, but they won't send it back out. And merchants, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you're if you're accepting more than you know, $5,000 worth of cash a year, you're going to be taxed extra or it's just not allowed. So you can do, you can, you know, effectively ban cash and then you can encourage the use of, of, you know, software money, central bank mm -hmm. digital currencies that can be programmed to be more captive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, it, it's, it's basically a way of doing coercion, um, you know, with less friction. Right. Um, and, and so there's basically a couple, so, Technology strikes both ways, uh, and so it gives people more options, but it, it also gives those authorities more options to the extent that they can corral entities into using them. Right. Um, and it also, you know, one of the only profitable ways to to do something when you have a lot of enforcement points is through um, high penalties, and that goes back to the the you know gold banning that I mentioned where. Mm. Uh, you, you didn't have that many prosecutions, but you had 10 years in prison. So how many people mm. would take that risk? Um, and so it was actually pretty low cost to enforce, but it also wasn't um, 
you know, you don't need complete enforcement for it to work. Mm -hmm. You just need some semblance. You need to narrow the exit doors so mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe not fully, they're not like airtight, but they're constrained enough that the, that the plan's working. And basically, I mean, you had some people, some entities just hodled gold for four decades. You know, it's, it's not like all gold went to the treasury, yeah. uh, but you, you couldn't just publicly trade gold around. Right. So, right. so, so you added frictions. And so even if someone wanted to own gold, you just made it much less desirable. So if, if before you would have ranked gold a 10 out of 10 asset, you would have ranked the treasury, you know, a six out of 10 asset. Yeah. Well, now they said, oh, well, now gold's like a five out of 10 asset because right. I, I face all sorts of risks and problems if I try to use it. And so, uh, and I want the, I want us to win the war anyway. So I guess I'll hold the treasury. Right. right. So, um, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's about making, it's about adding enough frictions to, you know, get, yes. get the, get the behavior that's desired. Yeah. Yeah. Like tweaking the, the game board, right. The incentives yeah. and the rules of the game. So slightly to tilt aggregate behavior in the direction you desire yes. as a yes. policymaker. So interesting. Um, and it is so interesting that the, you know, the bottom of this game does seem to be gold ultimately, right? It's like whoever, the ability to enforce those types of policy actions is really premised on your, you know, strength of your law, the strength of your military, which is, um, again, I mean, the reason, the re correct me if I'm wrong here, but the reason the U.S. is able to re rewrite the rules of the global banking order post-World War II is because, well, we won the war and we had the most gold. Yeah, at least historically. And it was actually, it was during the war, 1944, when they did the Bretton Woods Agreement. And basically, countries had been shipping their gold to the U.S. to protect it right. in the event that they were overrun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the United States had a ton of gold on its own, and then they were also holding the gold physically yeah. of other nations. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's gold, it's geography. So the United States yes. was, was blessed with the ge geography it had. It was physically mm -hmm. removed from the worst of the war. Mm -hmm. It had access to both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. It had natural resources. Mm -hmm. It had, you know, all, all those details. Yeah. And then military strength and the ability, you know, a large population that is, you know, organized rather effectively. So, you know, basically, yeah, if you if you can get that that access to gold, natural resources organization military then you're essentially the one that can write the rules wow so yeah a very interesting way um because we often say these things like very broad stroke but i think this paper is kind of mechanically getting into how these things work so i, th I think it's very interesting all right i want to read one more a little excerpt here, and this is going to talk about the financial repression tax, just to detail that out. It says, quote, when controlled nominal interest rates coupled with inflation produce negative real interest rates, it liquidates or reduces the stock of outstanding debt. And we mentioned this earlier, we refer to this as the liquidation effect. However, even in years when the real interest rates are positive, to the extent that these are kept lower than they otherwise would, would be via interest rate ceilings, large-scale official intervention, or other regulations and policies, there is a saving and interest expense to the government. These savings are sometimes referred to as the financial repression tax. So the other element to this is that governments being the biggest debtors on the stage, they're actually able to, by basically 
price, essentially planning the price, the interest rate, um, I guess you'd say what the cost of capital, right? The interest rate, they're able to award themselves this benefit of lowered interest expenses. And that itself is a tax on the public as well. Is that correct? Or am I saying that wrong? Any of that wrong? That's correct. I mean, basically if you, so when you want to provision the government, there are a couple ways to do it. I mean, it, let's say hypothetically you're on a gold standard and you were literally dealing in physical gold coins, the government can't print gold. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that they want to spend something, they have to first be able to tax it from the economy that they govern, and then they can they can spend it out. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they issue the currency, um, then the other way that they can do, they can tax some, they can spend some, but the, the extent that there's a gap, they have one of two methods. They can issue, issue debt to pay for it. Um, or they can just print money to pay for it. And usually they have rules restricting their ability to print money because otherwise they would you know, hyperinflate within right. the first couple of years. I mean, basically, if you look at countries and fiat currencies, ones that have more guardrails or make it harder to just outright print money mm -hmm. uh, last longer. Right. And, and so you, know, you can kind of apply the stock to flow ratio for fiat currencies around the world and ones yeah. that, that have more rules around their their growth tend to last longer. And so in the United States, for example, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously centralized, but the fact that you have some degree of independence between the central bank and the treasury um, at least slows down yes. kind of the banana republic type of financing that you would see if, if there was a weaker institutions. Uh, and given, you know, the long arc of time, those types of rules break down. Eventually you encounter exceptions big enough uh, that it just gets overridden, like in the 1940s or, right. you know, kind of, kind of in this current era. Um, but it, you know, the more institutions and guardrails you have, the longer you can get that to, to work well enough compared to, you know, more failed, more failed countries and their currencies. Um, but yeah, basically it, it's the cantillon effect in action. If you yeah. are the issue of currency, you can give yourself deeply negative real yields. Uh, and then if you're a, large credit worthy wealthy borrower say a bank or a billionaire you can also get you know maybe the next lowest yields um and if you're on the periphery if you're you know below income and you're relying on you know credit card debt or payday loans you're you're going to have the highest interest rate you're you're going to have actually a positive real yield um and so it extends out from the center yeah. um and that's partly that's a you know some aspect of that is natural market pricing where if I was going to choose to lend money to someone, I would obviously lend money cheaper to someone I, I view as very credit worthy right. um, compared to someone that is riskier. Uh, so that's normal. Um, but then I'll, when, you, when you add certain regulations to it, you can basically, and you can even kind of steepen that structure right. with, the, with, of course, the government at the very center because they're the issuer of it. So they, they're, the one, they're the only ones in the system that, that unilaterally can set their own rate. The risk-free, quote-unquote, creditor, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it, so there is a correspondence. I lo lo love this point. The more guardrails that are in place within a society to prevent just outright money printing, the more longevity that society tends to have, financially at least. So there's a correspondence here between the integrity of the money supply and the integrity of the society running on that money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if so, for example, the reason I hold some dollars, right? So mm -hmm. 
why, why would I hold some dollars? Whereas, you know, if there's some hyperflating in currency, where I would not hold that for five minutes. But why sure. would I hold some dollars? Because there's some degree of credibility that three months from now, it's still going to be worth more or less what it's worth today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because we, we have various laws saying, okay, um, you know, the Federal Reserve can't just, pre, you know, print money and buy treasuries directly from the treasury. They have to right. buy them in the secondary market. And of course, you know, the, the treasury can sell them to the secondary market and the Fed can just immediately buy it from the secondary yeah. market. So it's effectively money printing, but yeah. at least there's multiple parties along the way, at least there's some degree of transparency there about yeah. what's happening. Some friction, as you said there's earlier. Some fr- yeah, there's yeah. some friction there. Um, and of course, those rules are self-imposed. If, if mm-hmm. you had a big enough crisis, Congress could say, well, we, yeah. you know, we got to just do what we got to do. Yeah. Um, but at least until those rules are changed, you have some degree of, uh, you know, when you order fiat currencies in terms of their chance of failing in six months, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the ones with these actual guardrails are going to be the ones that have a negligible chance. And then the ones that are, you know, less institutional protection. So for example, Turkey ke- keeps removing central bankers right. that don't do what the president wants. And so you have very little separation there. Didn't uh, the president get, take over the the authority of treasury at some point in recent years in Turkey? I, I forget the nuances, yeah. but I, you know, I don't know that the detailed law of what happened, but yeah, basically they keep removing central removing bankers. Removing frictions, not, as you're saying. Yeah, there, yeah. yeah there, there's very little friction there between what the president wants interest rates to be. Right. And the reason we have some degree of separation there is because let's say you had no, let's say the treasury just said interest rates. Uh, if you're a president that's up for re-election in six months, you can say, well, let's cut interest rates. Let, let's get everything <laughs> awesome for these six months right. prior to my election. And then once we're elected, it's like, okay, now we'll raise rates a little bit. Yeah. And so you, you can't, so it's kind of like having a staggered term, you know, even yeah. though Obviously, the, the central bank officials are in part put in there by presidents or former presidents uh, in Congress. Yeah. There's at least a number of people have to agree to put that person there. Yeah. Um, and also there's other, you know, the, the banks themselves also in the United States because of the way we've got this kind of public private institution. There's also banks, uh, you know, putting people there. Yeah. And so, so they can say, well, you know, I'm just going to keep, they're, they're not forced to do something at the behest of the president. Right. in a short period of time. Now, historically, there have been instances where presidents of a very persuasive character kind of really hardly nudged the, the central bank to do something. And if push comes to shove, they can, you know, if they have all of Congress on their side, they can pass laws and just fully capture the central bank. Um, but basically, yeah, there's, there's just more frictions there about outright manipulation and outright, um, you know, literally micromanaging, say, money printing relative to a, a, an election or something. Right, like that. At least, right, at least, right. At least, at least more parties involved have to do it. So it's like having nuclear codes where like two generals have to like put their yes. keys in to launch it instead right. of like one person being able to do it. Right. Much more of a multi-sig versus yeah. just one guy holding all the keys. Exactly. Um, so this is a great, so just speaking sort of theoretically, philosophically, then I think and tell me if you agree or disagree or you think I might be wrong, that in theory, at least, the idea of Bitcoin being infinite friction to printing money would be really good for the integrity of a society running upon it. Yeah, I, w- I would describe it that way. I mean, at least to the extent that it, it continues to grow and be adopted and, and over time enforce adoption. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, we can go back to gold, for example, I, I think a really good philosophical question to ask is, could it have been different, right? Mm-hmm. Could, could the past century have been different? Did we have to 
have fiat currencies? Could we could we have been on this, some sort of free banking gold standard this whole mm-hmm. time? And there's actually a reasonable case to make that it, due to the order of technologies that happened, it, it you know unfortunately kind of had to happen like this because mm-hmm. our our speed of commerce uh, moved quicker than our speed of money. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 some of your research touches on this, like you know saleability across time or saleability right. across space. So so gold is saleable across time, but it's one of its key shortcomings, along with uh, divisibility, is that it's not very saleable across space. Mm-hmm. And so once once we invented telecommunications technology, and you know banks could update each other's ledgers, you know around the world almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we got, especially as we got the internet, and as we got all these technologies, just basically this this increasing types of telecommunications over the past 150 years, our speed of commerce made it so that we had to wrap gold in some sort of claim for yeah, gold. A promise, and once yeah. you yeah, and once yeah. you wrap it in a claim, it's it's begging for arbitrage. Right. right so right, right. So it and it, and and I think we have to ask ourselves today, why is you know out of 200 countries, why is there not one gold standard? Why mm. is there not one kind of free banking gold standard that just kind of practiced austerity and then did mm. all the right things and then they they became you know the closest you get is Switzerland, but even they uh stopped doing it eventually. Yeah. And so it's like the order of technology and the incentive structure around it made it, you know, much harder. And so, for example, if if gold just had the properties where you could just teleport it around, mm-hmm. imagine how hard it would be for policymakers to say, no, no, don't use that. Use this paper instead. So you'd be like, you'd, you'd laugh, you'd laugh them at the yeah. office. You'd be like, why would I know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, but the fact <laughs> that paper was convenient for centuries as a representation of gold is what made it possible uh right. you know the, the the gold had enough frictions on it uh, enough inherent uh-huh. limitations that these government papers were at least a contender to gold yeah. maybe not a, in terms of saleability across time but in terms of saleability uh across space and the you know you you could add enough frictions to gold that it's kind of it's hard to say which one's better for a lot of people because it's like they have to use it in some form yeah. um and so you can make the argument that Due to the order that technologies kind of had to develop, I mean, it's you know, you can't get Bitcoin until you get telecommunications channels. Right. Um, right we've right. had 150 years of, of various <laughs> types of telecommunications channels. That the speed of commerce just outpaced the speed of money for a period of time, and Bitcoin represents the first credible method where the speed of money is the same as the speed of commerce. Right. And so, to the extent that Bitcoin can you know, get through all these different challenges, right? There's the fork wars, there's bugs early yeah. on. There's yeah. a million altcoins that want to come and distract people and and dilute the scarcity of Bitcoin and basically yeah. say, you know, there's 21 million Bitcoin, but there's 10,000 cryptocurrencies and they're all those units. And so yeah. to the extent that it's able to grind through all of that, reach higher levels of adoption, if it, if, if it does eventually become ubiquitous, then that should, in theory, um, you know, make it much harder to do types of financial oppression because it's it's much easier to self custody it, move it around, right? Uh, more more portability options, and so that that can restrict the tools. And it becomes somewhat of a race because obviously the technology of Bitcoin. You know, it, another thought experiment is is was was something like Bitcoin inevitable once we developed? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like that question of is Bitcoin a discovery or an invention? Uh-huh. And my answer is always that you know there's digital scarcity is a discovery. 
but of course Satoshi could have made Bitcoin 42 million units. He could, you know, right. there's there's certain parameters that he could have chosen differently. So in that yeah. sense, it was an it was an invention based on a discovery. Yeah. And of course, the discovery was, you know, we made computers, we networked the computers together, we did Merkle trees, we we you know all we did encryption, we did all the pieces over time, and then someone eventually, of course, came around and inevitably found a way to put them together into something that that does this. And so to the extent that the user interface continues to be improved yeah. um, by all these companies that are you know, building on top of it, making it easier to custody, easier to use, easier to send, um, lightning network stuff, you know, all these different layers on top of it, to the extent that the community is strong enough to make it good enough to overcome all these other challenges, then yes, I think that can, that can change the, the game to some extent. That was brilliantly said. Um, and so we, in many ways, we're living through these second, third, fourth order consequences that originate with technological shortcomings of gold as money, right? It's like, yes, we couldn't send it over a telecommunication wire. And there were economies of scale that led to its centralization, right? It's much easier to put it all in one place and issue paper or electronic claims on top of it. Yes. And the philosophical questions well taken. And I think we, you know, technically we couldn't have done it, but it is possible to do. The problem is once you introduce the claim, as you said, the temptation to arbitrage or the temptation to misrepresent, right? To create more claims and you have gold is not resistible by human beings. So we basically inserted the human element. And that's, I mean, when I talk, when I talk about the corruption of money, that's what I mean specifically. It's like, we put this technological overlay on gold and then we abuse that overlay into fiat currencies ultimately. Do you think here, to, now that we're on the philosophical topic, I'm, I'm really going, do you think that the decentralization of Bitcoin custody, that's possible because now you can custody Bitcoin and in any information bearing medium. There's no need to build a big Fort Knox or a central bank or a safe. Do you think that would lead to the decentralization of the power structures built on top of that over time as well? I think so. As again, as long as that continues to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think people should be cautious about assuming that Bitcoin is inevitable, right? right. I mean, we're, we're, we're 13 years into this, we're testing out all of its features and shortcomings. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing to what extent it, it enforces its will essentially mm -hmm. on the world, right? So yeah. is it hard enough that it's almost inevitable that it has to be used by more and more people, that more and more people encounter it, and then it keeps kind of eating other monies mm -hmm. over time? You know, as these altcoins come and go, as, as you know, fiat currencies keep devaluing, um, is the is gold is Bitcoin easy enough to self custody, uh, and is it resistant enough to government restrictions on it? Mm -hmm. uh, is the game theory strong enough to make it so that Bitcoin can reach whatever critical mass it needs to resist, you know, executive orders that would kind of you know mm -hmm. filter it out of of most existence? Can it get big enough and, and entrenched enough before those pushbacks occur? Because mm -hmm. um, you can imagine a future where Bitcoin stumbles in some way, maybe one of those early bugs was not fixed fast enough and it mm -hmm. damaged the reputation and, 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 or, you know, countries move faster on CBDCs and then, they, right. you know, they, 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 they have a way to 
keep up and, and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, keep it from hitting whatever critical mass it needs, which is hard to know in advance. Yeah. Um, and so again, so with the caveat that Bitcoin is able to get through those various frictions, yeah. uh, then yeah, I think that, that can, that, it can change the power structure. I think I would describe it as the best shot that we have right now, um, yeah. in order to have money move as fast, you know, bare asset money, not claims for money, but the actual money itself to move as fast as commerce. Yes. Um, and so it, it, you know, you would think that given, you know, as, as, as long as there's not some sort of bug that's found in like most nodes right now, and then there's some sort of reputational damage or, you know, things like that, as long as tail risks don't hit it, it continues to be, you know, the most attractive way to, you know, the, the most attractive money that we have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think we're teasing out a really interesting point here that the, one of the primary determinants in my view, I'd love to hear what you think, of the configuration of our geopolitical reality is really rooted in the nature of this technology called gold, right? The fact that we needed to centralize it all in one place. Like it, we talked about earlier, it influenced the outcome of world war two influenced the outcome of Bretton woods. You know, it, I think it influences where people live to some extent. It obviously influences the entire nature and structure of the financial system. The fact that we use all of this deferred settlement debt to accelerate our transactions because final settlement in gold is not, it's prohibitively expensive, basically, and you can't really do it um, for a globalizing economy, at least. It's interesting how much of all of this reality is just a reflection of this technology we built on top on, we built ourselves on top of. And so it's interesting to think that, well, if that, if gold then is now being potentially, Bitcoin's got a lot of things to prove. It's going to take a while, but if Bitcoin does disrupt gold, then the whole reality built on top of it, it's probably going to look a lot different. And that to me is a really interesting, just point of philosophical consideration. Yeah. And this, you know, to the extent that sound, that sounds extreme to people, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the story of human history is that mm. physical realities dictate where we end up and what we do. I mean, so for example, yeah. our, it's not an accident that our major cities are mostly built on rivers and coasts right? Um, because that was the dominant form of, of large-scale transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when you have the invention of airplanes, you can somewhat bypass that problem. But of course, still for major shipments, you know, yeah. being situated near water is, is very important. There's also a source of power. You can have various, you know, you know, ways to harness the power from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that gold could be so centralized is, is you know, it, that trickles into our, how we structure society that, that, you know, for thousands of years, you know, basically power came from having gold, being able to, that, that lets you pay soldiers and that lets you mm-hmm. enforce your will. Um, and so by certain accidents of history, as well as just the, the details of, of what we have to work with, that's been how this works. And, you know, going back to the whole banking situation, you know, it used to be, let's say you have a, a, a free banking environment where banks, you know, they have gold as reserves and they issue claims. You know, if you deposit gold, you get a, you get a claim for that gold and then they'll loan some of that gold out or, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make various loans. You know their ability to make loans, which which you know when a bank makes loans, they effectively create money. Mm-hmm. You know, money mm-hmm. to the extent that money's credit, they create credit. Um, they create claims on money when they make a loan, and if they have gold at their own vaults, they're constrained by their ability to make credit 
based on their assessment of risk, based on their chance of default, based on not wanting mm. to do fraud. Their um, skin in the game, basically. Yeah, the skin in the game, risk mm -hmm. of a bank run. Yeah. They have to be very careful. Now, if, if you then say, okay, so the gold centralized in a bunch of banks, uh, or at least a lot of it is. By being centralized in a bunch of banks, it's very easy for you know the government to say, okay, well, we're gonna actually going to take that and put it into the central bank. Because mm -hmm. again, you're not enforcing it on the person-by-person -person level. Right. You're enforcing it on the bank-by-bank -bank level, which is much easier to do. So then you then you get into the central bank um, and you issue, you know, so so normal banks, instead of having gold in their vaults, they have claims, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they, they have bank reserves. They have, they have deposits at the central bank. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually no more, you know, banks never check how much gold they have before making right. a loan. Yeah. And so that's why, so, so even at that point, if you're still in technically a gold standard, let's say, you know, gold was at the banks, then it went to the central bank, then it went to the treasury. So all the gold's in the treasury. And technically the dollar's still pegged by gold at that point. Mm -hmm. But the problem is at that point, it's already unsustainable because the rate of new money creation is no is so disconnected from that gold. Mm -hmm. You know, banks are not checking how much gold we have in our vault before we make right. a loan. Um, that, yeah, and you even had a situation where the foreign sector, euro dollar, uh, you know, banks, basically banks outside the United States with dollars, they could make dollar-based loans. And so you even had just entities outside of the Fed's jurisdiction making dollar loans and putting new dollars into existence. And these right. were technically pegged to gold and redeemable for gold by foreign official central banks, even though they were illegal for Americans to own. Right. And so it was, it was inevitable that the dollar was going to go off to the gold standard. That's why I say that, you know, in 1971, the mistake was not made in 1971. It was, that was like marking to market something that had been failing for a mm -hmm. long time. You had, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the late sixties, you already had the crossover point that there was, it was completely unsustainable. There were more claims for gold by the foreign official sector than there was gold. Mm -hmm. And so you had this, multi-decade environment starting in Bretton Woods where gold reserves were dwindling, all this dollar creation was happening. It was so divorced from the amount of gold, even though it was on a gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so that that unique property of gold or that that just inherent limitation of gold where it is it is challenging to transport safely and you know expensive to audit and mm -hmm. has these various forces that centralize it kind of led to these the ability to go around it and make currencies and and you know have the whole story of the past century. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, it it there there are nooks and crannies where corruption festers because of gold's technological limitations, perhaps. And that what you're describing there with the euro dollars is interesting too, because that's those are kind of like the original stable coins, right? <laughs> there too much Pretty demand much. for dollars abroad, couldn't get dollars through the traditional fed channels so they just spun up a peg right and but it was redeemable to gold to your point um yeah really really interesting but really enjoyed that tangent